last Sunday we saw in Scripture how carefully Abraham and his faithful servant prepared to secure a godly wife for his son, his one and only son, the son of promise, Isaac. Isaac was to be the heir of all that Abraham was given, not only in terms of worldly possessions, but ultimately in terms of the blessing of God, who had promised that from Abraham all the world would be blessed. In the effort then to find Isaac a a wife and therefore to enable Isaac to have a family of his own, great care was taken. We saw in Genesis 24, I think, a beautiful picture of how a godly father and a godly mother pass on the faith to their children. They take great pains in the fear of God to honor God in providing for their children that they would secure a wife or a husband in the Lord. In today's sermon, which is the seventh sermon in a series on the great patriarchs of Genesis, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we come then to that family which God created through Isaac and his wife, Rebekah. And while the story leaves a lot unsaid, we don't know exactly what takes place in this family. What we are given in Isaac's family is that in many ways, it's the opposite of what Abraham's family looked like. Rather than the mature faith of Abraham's later years and the fear of God, which is evident in the management of his household, we find in Isaac's home a sad state of affairs one in which father and mother are at odds with each other. And the blush and the early love that we see in Genesis 24, in which they comforted one another and cared for one another, has given way to competition, rivalry, and scheming. And both sons, which are given to Rebekah, also war against one another, even to the point that one of the sons plots to murder the other son. And through all of this, what one author called rascally rebellion, what we see, even as we just sang in that song, is the marvelous, all-powerful, all-prevailing grace of God. God is pleased with this cast of misfit characters to show his grace and the covenant of grace being passed on in spite of the fact that Everyone in this story deserved the opposite. So this is the big point I want to leave you with today. No no one, certainly none of you who are blessed by God, deserve the blessings that you have. Every single thing that you've received, you've received in and through Christ, the source of all of our blessings. And if you were to get what you deserve, it would be not the merit of Christ, but the demerit of of hell. I also want to leave you with a reminder that the way that God tends to show his blessing moves outside of normal human channels. The way that you would plan often is not the way that God would plan. And what you would consider an advantage or a strength is often a weakness. And what you would consider a weakness is often God's chosen means to bring about his ends. So we're learning about Jacob's blessing in this light. And in support of these overall goals, I want to show you three features of Jacob's blessing in Genesis this morning. Now, I have a tremendous task because Jacob takes up about 11 chapters of Scripture And the blessing is spread out over two chapters in a bit of a choppy way. So we're going to be selecting passages from both Genesis chapter 25 and Genesis chapter 27 and gathering together some some crucial information that will help you understand not only Jacob's blessing, but how God may be blessing you as well today. So let's begin with prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for this portion of scripture. We thank you that though it is complex and even a little confusing at times, 
the essence of it is truly very simple. You desire to bless us in a way that often confounds our own and others' expectations. And you work with us, undeserving sinners. What good news this is for those who have ears to hear and eyes to see. So, Lord, give us those ears and those eyes this morning that we might not be distracted by our own concerns, but that we would find ourselves not only in your story, but continuing your story to bring the blessing of Jacob to the world. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Three features in Jacob's blessing that deserve your attention this morning. But the first feature is that it is based on God's sovereign election. The first feature that I'm going to show you from scriptures this morning is that Jacob's blessing is based not on anything that is found in Jacob himself, what theologians call merit. God sees nothing in Jacob, actually, that warrants the blessing other than what we will call God's sovereign election. Now, this is important because the blessing of Jacob in chapters 25 and 27 is mentioned at least three times in at least three different points in his life with a number of different people securing it or providing it. Even later in Jacob's life, Jacob's blessing is mentioned several more times. But what is crucial to note at this point in his life and essential for understanding the entire Jacob story is that the first time, the very first time the blessing of Jacob is mentioned, it is mentioned by God. And it is mentioned in an answer to a mother's prayer. Take a look at Genesis 25, verses 22 and 23. Actually, we'll begin with Genesis 25, verse 21. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. This phrase, if it is thus, why it is happening to me, Rebekah, a mother, she's an expectant mother, and we're going to find out in just a moment she's carrying twins, and it is a ruckus going on in Rebekah's womb. These two are going at it. They're getting after it. And brothers often fight. Twin brothers often fight. These twin brothers were the, were the, were the battle warriors of them all, we'll say. And Rebecca is wondering, why is this happening to me? I, I suspect part of her question is, am I going to die? That's how intense the battle was. Why is this happening to me? I thought that the blessing of Abraham was passed to my husband Isaac, and through me, the, the blessing is going to continue. I was, I was, it was prophesied over me that I would be the mother of a thousand, ten thousands. If it is thus, this war going on in my womb, how is this promise going to come about? It also might suggest that she's, she senses that there is something weighty or serious about her pregnancy that she that she didn't understand. And so she goes to the Lord to inquire, God, why, why is this happening to me? Why is this the pregnancy that you gave me? Now, we're not told what it meant that she inquires of the Lord. It may be Isaac was a man of prayer. He was a man of contemplation. We see him contemplating and praying to God in the fields when he first meets his wife. And we know that this probably was his practice. So maybe that she went to one of these places of meditation or a sacrificial altar that Isaac had built. It may be that an unnamed prophet is sought out. Perhaps Melchizedek was the person who delivered this oracle to her. But all we're told in verse 23 is that the Lord said to her, however he said it, the Lord Jehovah said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. 
The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. What Rebekah is told is that with, as with Isaac's older brother Ishmael, so it will be now with her two boys. The older will serve the younger. The difference, though, is that now with Rebekah's children, both children are from the same mother. Both children are from the woman of promise. And both children are born at the same time. So all distinguishing features which were present in the difference between Ishmael and Isaac have been removed in the case of Jacob and Esau. This proves that God's choice to or that Jacob's blessing comes to him purely through the sovereign choice of God. There is nothing else that distinguishes these two, although they are a little different looking, as we'll find out in just a moment. Now, surely people get involved in the story, and the craziest of efforts are undertaken to try to secure the blessing. But their efforts come later. If you are to understand the story of Jacob and Esau, and then Jacob's 12 sons, you have to begin here at Genesis 25. In the womb of Rebekah, Jacob's mother. And recognize that the only reason that Jacob is blessed is because God determined it to be so. We're going to find Esau and Jacob fighting with one another. Jacob scheming to secure his brother's birthright and later the blessing. Rachel, I'm sorry, Rebecca, plotting with her son against her husband Isaac to frustrate Isaac's plan. Isaac ignoring the blessing of God. We're going to see all of this drama unfold in just a few minutes. But what is at the beginning? What's at the outset? The headwaters, the, the bubbling pure spring. The first blush of the blessing comes from the very mouth of God. This oracle that says the younger will be served by the older. The blessing of God comes to Jacob by the sovereign election of God. But perhaps we need to consider what sovereign election means. Election means choice. When you have a national election, a candidate is chosen. Recently, we had an opportunity to vote in some regional elections. You cast a vote or made a choice or a selection for a candidate. So sovereign election is a choice or selection by a king. And when it's God's sovereign election, it is the ultimate king, the ultimate power, the ultimate authority. There is no authority, no power, no choosing, which is more mightier than the choice of a sovereign God. Sovereign election might be thought of as a choice by God then that advances God's plans and God's purposes no matter what our plans and purposes may be. You might think of it as, a, as an umbrella or as a, as a dome. God's sovereign election is the overarching dome that, that encompasses all of his purposes and all of his plans for the world. No matter what cho choosing that the human agents beneath that umbrella may make. It's a choice also that advances God's glory and honor. You see, our choosing, our elections, our, our choices and selections, uh, it's a mixed bag. Sometimes I'm advancing God's glory and honor. Oftentimes I'm not. But when it's God's sovereign election, we are sure, and you can be sure, that God's glory and honor will be advanced in the world. That also means that God's sovereign election tends to serve to bring dishonor to the glory of man. At one point in John the Baptist's ministry, he said of Jesus, he must increase and I must decrease. Better words could not be spoken of the man who is to prepare the way of the Lord. And better words could not be spoken for us as we think of God's sovereign election. He must increase and we must decrease. When God elects and God chooses, his glory will be advanced, not the glory of man. We can also be assured that because it's God's sovereign election, 
there is an element of mystery. The divine involvement in our lives hardly comes in ways that we expect or can anticipate or even fully understand. Sometimes, no matter how hard we think about it, what seems to be happening to us under God's sovereign electing purposes seems to go directly against what we think would advance the glory of God. That's the nature of a sovereign election, God's sovereign election, is that it carries a, often it's shrouded in mystery, it carries a certain um, fog about it that we cannot penetrate no matter how hard we might pray or ask or inquire. And so it's important then that God's sovereign election is the basis of Jacob's blessing. Because only when divine election is the foundation for the promises given to Abraham will it be clear that the reward of God and the friendship of God is not given based on human behavior, but it's based on God's grace. This situation, you see, developed of necessity as a result of the fall of man in the garden. Adam was placed in the garden and was called to to tend it and to guard it and to keep it. He was placed in a situation that was ideal for his success as a creature made in the image of God. He He enjoyed full creaturely communion with his creator. He was given clear instructions and a wide berth of operations. Every tool at his disposal, including the woman, which was taken out of a rib from his side. The one rule that he was asked to keep was that he was not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we believe, had Adam kept that commandment, he would have been confirmed in righteousness. And as I was reading in preparation for my sermon this this morning, going back to the garden just to see the, the big picture here, the clothing that Adam was ultimately given, the clothing of skins, was given in response to Adam's sin. Had Adam and Eve not sinned, they would have been clothed in glory. And the glorious robes of righteousness that Almighty God would have placed upon Adam and Eve, you see, they would not have remained naked forever according to this one commentator. I think that's probably accurate. That glorious clothing would have been an indication that man in his obedience could, could merit the blessing of God. The clothing itself would have represented the reward of man's faithfulness. But ever since then, because man was unfaithful, he had to be clothed by the shedding of blood. He had to be clothed in the skins of a beast because he behaved like a beast. And so God's sovereign choice in this matter of Jacob and Esau to carry on the blessing of Abraham through Jacob instead of Esau, the younger instead of the older, is is required because ever since the fall of mankind, we are under God's wrath and curse, not his blessing. And the only way we can come to the blessing of God is if he sovereignly chooses to include us in that blessing. You know, this is exactly how the New Testament explains this episode Let's turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 9. There's a saying about the Bible, if, if you're new to reading Scripture, that, that the old is in the new revealed, and the new is in the old concealed. So when we read the New Testament, we find it shedding light, revealing how, how we are to read and understand the Old. And when we read the Old Testament, you find it uh, anticipating or, or foreshadowing what's to come in the New Testament. And here we have a classic example. And in my Bible, ESV, titles uh, Romans chapter 9, God's sovereign choice is the editor's heading there. Look at Romans 9, verse 6. It is not as though the word of God has failed, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So that excludes Ishmael. And then verse 8, this means it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, 
but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but when also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, and here it is, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of him who works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. And then verse 16, so it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. You see, election highlights our desperate need of grace. Sovereign election highlights our desperate need of God's grace. The sovereign election of God shows that the only way to receive the friendship and blessing of God is through the love of God, the undeserved love of God. Voss says that God's sovereign election here brings out the graciousness of grace, the gratuitousness of God's kindness. It is truly and ultimately gracious. In fact, if there's any part in you that warrants the blessing of God, to that degree the grace of God is diminished. If there's a hundred units of grace and you have earned one unit so that 99 units, I'm saved by 99 units of grace and one unit of my effort, then you lose grace. You lose fellowship with God by that degree. You see, only full friendship with God will enable us to fulfill our calling as creatures. So even one unit of grace or one unit of your effort, your merit, your work, diminishes the splendid, sparkling grace of God. It also diminishes the glory of God because if you're saved even by one or two good works of your own, then when you stand before God in his holy heaven and he says, why should I let you into my heaven? You do not say it's the shed blood of Christ and Christ alone. You say it was somewhat Christ or mostly Christ or, or Christ here and there. But then again, I did a not too bad job myself. And no one would say it in just that, that bald-faced way, but that is in fact what we're saying. We're saying that our standing before God comes on the basis of our works. So God chose Jacob, the younger, to be served by the older, inverting the human pattern and paradigm of the ancient world where the oldest son was the son of choice. He was the son of promise. He was the son of the heritage. He was the son of the double blessing. And God flipped that on his head. And by his sovereign choice, he chose Jacob to prove that you and I contribute nothing to our salvation. Our needed atonement, the blessing of God, is proven by the choice of Jacob over Esau. The only way for you to be friends and to be at peace with God is by his sovereign choice. That's the first feature about the blessing of Jacob is that it's based on God's sovereign election and by far the most important one. But then as we go on in the, in the Jacob story, a little later on in chapter 25, we see a second feature that is worth our attention this morning. And that feature is that the blessing of Jacob is anticipated by Esau's foolish rejection. The blessing of Jacob is anticipated by Esau's foolish rejection. So let's continue the story in verse 24 of Genesis 25. When Rebekah's days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb, the first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they named his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with, a, with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. Now, this is quite the picture. I don't know if any of you moms have twins this morning, or I met a mother this week who had triplets, and it turns out that 
one of the, the, the two boys and a girl. The girl was actually the second to be born, but she was literally stuck up under her mother's rib. And so the third born, the second boy, came out first, and the second born, the girl, came out third. And this is important for families with multiples, you know, even though, and, and I asked the mother, because I knew I was preaching on this, she said, yeah, uh, son number two came out one minute after son number one, but because my daughter was stuck up in there, it took her three more minutes to get out. Well, this, this has all of that drama and more. I mean, first of all, Esau comes out with some sort of a medical condition that I'm told is not totally uncommon with babies, which is that a, a baby be covered with hair. Now, some children come out with more hair than others. Esau had a hairy cloak. I mean, he was a hair-covered boy. And this is fitting for Esau because it is, it's, it's a prefiguring of Esau's life. Esau is a sporting man. He's a hairy man. He's a, a man's man. He's a dude, a tough guy. He likes hunting and fishing and the out-of-doors. And he likes eating the fruits of his labor. And so we see him coming out as, as a hairy man. And Esau is sort of a nickname for the, the Hebrew word for red. It's a red-headed hairy man. But then Jacob comes out shortly after. Esau emerges from Rebekah's womb and first, all you see of Jacob is a hand holding Esau's foot. And so they give him the name Jacob, which means one who grasps or one who schemes. Also a very interesting portent of the life of this man. When the boys grew up, in verse 27, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a contemplative man, a quiet man dwelling in tents. Esau was with his father in the field. He was a tough guy. Jacob was a little softer. He was more, maybe more of an academic. He's a quiet man. He's a, he's a meditative man. Luther called him a pious man. He's not getting into trouble, or at least not that you can see. You see what I'm saying? He was a schemer. And because of this, Isaac loved Esau he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, verse 29, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. So I'm saying the second feature here is that Jacob's blessing is anticipated by Esau's foolish rejection. You see, shortly after the birth of the twins is described, we jump to this event in Jacob and Esau's life where Jacob characteristically is around the tent. Apparently he's got cooks, he's got gifts in the kitchen. He's a budding chef. Uh, he's handy with, with recipes. And there's a red lentil stew or a porridge that he's made. And Esau comes in from the field, he's starving, he's been out all day, he's exhausted, and he smells the food, and he says, give me some of that food. See, Esau is a man of his senses, we're to understand. He's a man who's driven by his appetites. He's a, if I can say it, he's a carnal man. Carnal means the flesh. He, he has an appetite, he, he feels the passions of the flesh, and he acts on them. He doesn't stop to think about it. Jacob, on the other hand, thinks about everything that he does. Remember, he 
came out of the womb grasping Jacob's heel. He's a schemer. He's a plotter. He, he sees and strategizes, and he sees an opportunity for himself at this point. He sees that his brother doesn't care anything about the promise of God to Abraham. Now, I'm not sure how much Jacob cares about it either, to be honest. Because both boys, men in this story, give a pretty embarrassing portrait of covenant children. One is a man of the flesh, and the other is a manipulator, a conniver, and a schemer. Which would you rather be? Well, if we hadn't started with sovereign election, you might say, well, I think I'd rather be a conniver and a schemer. But we're not allowed to conclude that, you see. God is showing us Jacob's total lack of deserving the blessing of God in this account. The wickedness of Esau is matched, I believe, stride for stride with the wickedness of Jacob. Both brothers show themselves to be completely unqualified to carry on the blessing of God and the covenant promise. And this would prove to be a turning point in both men's lives because while they're both completely unqualified, it is Jacob who seeks the blessing, however undeserving he may be and however sketchy his methods may be. And it is Esau, we're told in verse 34, who despises the blessing. And so I'm saying that Esau's foolish rejection anticipates ultimately the giving of the blessing to Jacob by Isaac. But what is a birthright and how does it compare to the blessing? At this point in biblical history, the birthright consisted in supremacy given to one of the sons over the rest of the brothers and the rest of the family. It also meant at what one commentator calls the title to the blessing of promise, which would be received later. And along with the title came the future possession of Canaan and covenant fellowship with Jehovah God. This was all wrapped up in the birthright. And so think about it. As wicked as he was, Jacob was seeking this. And as we could say, give him an excuse, he was hungry. As hungry as Esau was, he was despising this. So the birthright is the blessing in principle, the blessing in advance before it is given. It is the right to the blessing in the future. And Jacob knows this. He knows exactly what he's doing, and he makes use of his brother's hunger and all of his tricks, his grasping tricks, to obtain it, though unlawful and unholy, he does so with an oath. And so after the fact, because there is an oath involved, there is no way the parents can undo this childhood prank. We're talking, this is serious business. Esau, likewise, cared only for the present, and that's proven in our text. He says, I am about to die, verse 32. Of what use is a birthright to me? Think about the difference of this. I was thinking of this compared to how Abraham was considering God's ability to provide on Mount Moriah. His son Isaac is about to die, and what does he say? The Lord will provide. So Abraham was definitely had mature faith at that point in his life. He, he sees what he cannot see. Esau is absolutely the opposite of Abraham here. All he can see is what's right in front of his face. And his mindset shows that the only, the only thing that mattered to him was the present, not the spiritual blessings of the future. And this is, by the way, how Scripture remembers Esau as well in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 16 and 17. Esau is described as sexually immoral and unholy in verse 16. The word unholy is worth thinking about for just a moment. Unholy means to be worldly. It means to be profane. This means that 
Esau was totally immersed in the things of this life. He was a profane man. He was fully secular. There was nothing sacred about him. We use the word unholy as a verb when we're forbidden to profane the Sabbath. We're to keep it holy. We must not violate the sanctity of the Lord's day according to God's word. Likewise, we're to keep the name of the Lord himself, Jehovah, Yahweh. We're not to profane the name of the Lord. We're not to treat it as meaningless or empty. And and Esau lived a meaningless, empty, worldly, secular life, living only for the present as if this life were all that there is. So this certainly doesn't justify Jacob's behavior but it does prove that Esau had chosen against the promises of God. And in doing so, he forfeited the blessing of God. So we're looking at the features of the blessing, and we see that the first feature that is based on God's sovereign election, the second feature is that it's anticipated by Esau's foolish rejection. The third feature which I've been touching on throughout the sermon already this morning, is that the blessing is confirmed in spite of sinful manipulation. Remember I mentioned the overarching sovereign providence of God, the sovereign election of God, is is in operation regardless of the maneuvering of the sinful actors beneath this umbrella. So the blessing of Jacob ultimately is confirmed in spite of the bad actors of his father, his mother, and even he himself. Look at Genesis 27. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son. And he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me and prepare for me delicious food such as I love and bring it to me that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Wow. Boy, we see some sinful manipulation going on in this passage, don't we? First of all, Isaac surely knew of the oracle pronounced to his wife about the nature of the children in her womb. He completely disregards the prophecy of God. He also ignores Esau's frivolous bartering away of the birthright, which he was surely told about at a later time. Esau was also blind. Now he's, I'm sorry, Isaac was blind. Now he's going blind. But he's blind to Esau's ungodly Canaanite wives. We don't have time to talk about this morning, but Esau at this point in the story is married to wives from Canaan, the very thing that Abraham tried to prevent Isaac from doing. And Isaac is essentially praising Esau's choice of a wife, the very thing that, that his father went to such pains to avoid in his life. And we see a kind of, uh, I don't know, merging of the appetites of Esau and the appetites of his father Isaac here. It's quite disturbing that Isaac is operating on the same carnal, profane appetite as his son. Bring me some of that food that I love, that you love, that we love. You and me, son, my oldest son. Come here, boy. But I don't want to be too hard on the man because he's not the only sinful manipulator in the story. Mom gets in, jumps in head first. Because she apparently, verse 5, is listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Genesis 27, verse 6, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat that he may bless you before he dies. Seriously, mom? (laughs) 
Jacob said, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. So at this point, Jacob doesn't say, Mother, dear, God-fearing mother of mine, do not reduce yourself to such godless, sinful manipulation. Let us trust Jehovah Almighty. He will provide for the blessing just as he did for my father on Mount Moriah. How many times did Grandpa Abe tell that story? Jacob joins right in. His main concern is that he's going to be caught. And I'm told the skin of camel goats in the ancient Near East, in this part of the world, was actually used as a substitute for hair at times. And so, while in my mind, putting goat skin on your neck or your hands doesn't exactly sound like something that would trick someone, it might have been more convincing than my modern brain would have understood. So, in the account... When Jacob finally goes into his father, he lies, bold-faced, direct, contrary to truth lies, not once, but twice. And in one of the lies, he actually claims that God helped him. Now, there is nothing that defines sinful manipulation better than lying. Because lying says, I can't trust God in this situation. I've got to take, take the wheel into my own hands. Sinful manipulation. Well, we need to leave the story of Jacob there. There's so much more that could be said. But I want to conclude with an illustration from a book that I love, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Have you read it? I read it many years ago when I was in high school, and in the book, the author Douglas Adams has a supercomputer that apparently figures out the meaning of life, and you may have heard this. You know the meaning of life, right? 42. Profound, right? 42. And when the supercomputer was asked, are you sure that's the meaning of life? The supercomputer says, yeah, I'm sure. The problem is, You're just not asking the right question. And so I share this just to say that in this case, no cryptic answer was given to Rebecca's prayer when she asked the meaning of what was going on in her womb. It wasn't some weird, strange language. It wasn't a a, a cryptic number. She prayed to the Lord, and the Lord heard her prayer and answered her prayer. He explained that the older would serve the younger, that the promise was real, that the boys would come out of the womb and God would do his mighty work in God's sovereign way. The problem wasn't that she didn't understand the answer. The problem was that Rebecca and her husband Isaac and the two boys didn't live up to the answer that they were given. The problem wasn't that it wasn't clear or that they didn't know. The problem was that they didn't obey. They didn't believe. That's the bad news. The good news is that in everyone's case, except for Esau, they came around by the end of their lives. How can we apply this morning's message? First of all, I want to encourage you to pray for for a united Christian family in your homes. There is nothing sweeter than a mother and a father who not only love each other at first sight, as Isaac and Rebecca did, but whose love continues to grow and mature in Christ all through the decades that they spend together in this short life that God gives us. Unlike Isaac and Rebecca, a united Christian marriage is one in which we not only begin, as Josh and Carolyn are beginning their lives together very soon, begin with with the flush of young love. It's a beautiful thing. But that after 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 or more years of marriage, we are growing in love and intimacy. 
and we don't find ourselves fighting and scheming and working behind each other's backs and eavesdropping and lying to one another and plotting and, and working against one another and tearing that union apart which God has joined. Instead, we find ourselves when we sin against each other, for we sin is as couples seeking forgiveness, showing mercy. And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, love keeps no record of wrongs. So practicing the art of forgetting as well as forgiving. But it isn't just a united marriage that we're seeing portrayed. The need for that in our text this morning, I think, and we, as we apply this, we need to pray for the salvation of our children. And there's nothing which, which affects a child's faith more than a parent's marriage. And in talking with Josh and Carolyn in their premarital counseling, we emphasize this with them. And we emphasized it with some regret because in spite of our best efforts, and in fact, we often didn't give our best efforts, we have not showed a picture of Christ in the church to our children, my wife and I, that we should have or could have. Which leads me to a second application. A divided family is a great curse. It's a great burden. If you're married to a spouse, a husband, or a wife who doesn't believe, you carry a weight and a burden on you that is hard for someone with a believing spouse to appreciate. You need the support of the church. You need the encouragement of other sisters and brothers in the community of faith to help you. And we need to be covenanted as a, as a church family to pray for unbelieving spouses in our midst. It's a great burden. But the division of family is even greater, perhaps, when a Christian husband and wife see one of their children follow the path of Esau. And even the path of Jacob wasn't clear at the outset if he would carry on in the faith. But selling one's birthright, which could be a shorthand, if I may put it that way, for apostasy or leaving the faith, as seems to be very common with young people in their teens and 20s today, is a great curse to a family. It is hard for a husband and wife to bend their knees in prayer for an unbelieving, wayward son or daughter. But we must bear this well. Because ultimately, we need to rely on the sovereign grace of God, even in our mistakes as parents. We need to hear that it is God's grace, not our parental behavior, ultimately, that our children's salvation hinges upon. And while it is inappropriate for a parent to say, oh, well, God's in charge, and give no thought to himself or herself and our behavior in our children's lives, that is inappropriate. We must reflect on how we may have contributed to our children's state or condition of salvation. Nevertheless, we must rest in the hope and in the confidence and in the knowledge, number one, that he is not done with your kids yet. Number two, he may choose to work in their lives in a way unexpected and maybe even unseen by you. You may pass into eternity and never see your, salvation, your child profess faith in Christ. That does not mean that God is done with your children yet. And number three, though you may have failed, he may have sovereignly permitted that failure to highlight your need for grace and your child's need for grace. Your, salvation, your child's salvation does not ultimately depend upon you. So I'll end with this. The grace of God transcends and defies human power. And that's what we see on Calvary. When Jesus died on the cross, he died as a criminal. He was mocked and despised. Even his closest friends thought that the story had ended. But three days later, when he rose from the dead, to the shock and unbelief of his disciples, we see the power of God at work in human weakness. And we see the word that God speaks over death once and for all, that death has no power over his people. And if he has given you his son to rescue you from death, then every earthly trial is under the sovereign electing, gracious, graciously gracious,
power of God. And that's what you must hold on to. Let us pray. Father, we end this morning's time in the Word with just a, 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 a fresh amazement at the grace of God. I pray that, that we will see how mighty and how powerful you are in these areas of our life, in our relationships with our spouses, our children, if, if we're married and if we have children. How important it is, Lord, that we understand your ways and your work in the world and in our families. For those of us with children that do not believe or who have left the faith, I pray for a lightening of the burden, for an easing, perhaps, of pangs of conscience, for failures which loom large in a reflective parent's mind, for a sense of guilt that a mother may feel or a sense of failure that a father may feel. I pray for a lightening of that, Lord, and for a refreshment, a fresh sense that you are at work in our children's lives. Lord, if, if someone is seeking a spouse, seeking to be married or dating, I pray that the, the priority, that this morning's message will be a, a wake-up call to the importance of a Christian marriage. And for those of us who have been blessed with godly spouses, may we not take them for granted. Godlier husbands and wives than us have, have run their marriage over the cliff and into the rocks with less, Lord. So let us, let us remember that our marriages rise and fall on the grace of God. And may we recommit ourselves to the kind of love which ought to characterize people who are saved by grace. May we not take a salvation by grace for ourselves, but turn it into a, a works relationship in our marriage, punishing our spouses for things that they do and do not do. And finally, Lord, would you be glorified in this church as we seek to be a community of grace that rests, loves, and celebrates the sovereign, electing, graciously grace of God. We ask it in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Church House located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.